Acts chapter number 10. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at some Bible teaching today. This is a very important chapter in the Scripture. It's a very pivotal uh, chapter. Some things begin to change after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, after some of the things that we've already seen transpire early on in the book of Acts. And some things that we'll be looking at today are very pivotal when it comes to understanding God's plan for the ages and actually opening up the Bible and being able to make sense of the various portions in which we read from. I remember a number of years ago getting acquainted with the sport of ice hockey. I didn't grow up with ice hockey. I grew up with basketball, baseball, and football, the the big three, if you will. And uh, the first hockey game that I saw live, I just, I, I remember getting up off of my seat and actually, I mean, I practically had my nose up to the glass and I am watching and I am like, wow, that looks great. I want to do that. And if you've ever watched hockey and never have had anybody explain to you the rules, it just looks like a bunch of chaos. And I mean, things are going on and all of a sudden the whistle blows and you're going, why'd they blow the whistle? I don't understand. And then you think, well, the same thing just happened that happened a minute ago, and they blew the whistle then, but they didn't blow the whistle then, and so you just stay confused. And one thing I found out, if you look at an ice rink, a hockey ice rink, there are blue lines and there's red lines. And the truth of the matter is, if you understand the rules behind the blue line and the red line, you pretty much got the game of hockey fairly figured out. But without the understanding of those two lines, everything just looks chaotic. The same thing goes with our understanding of the Bible. There are a handful of principles that we need to understand that will literally open open up the Word of God to our understanding. And we're going to take a look at a number of those here today. So let's start reading in our text, Acts chapter number 10 and verse number 1. The Bible says there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. We're going to hear his story here today about how he became a convert to Christianity. I love to hear stories of how people get saved, don't you? I like telling my story of what the Lord's done in my life. I like hearing your story. But here we're going to take a look at the story of Cornelius' conversion. Cornelius, it says, he was a centurion. That meant that he was over some Roman soldiers of the band called the Italian Band. I don't know if he was the lead drummer or the lead singer. Or what he actually... That was not very funny, but I'm glad Taylor laughed at it. Thank you, brother. Verse number two, he was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, An angel of God coming in uh, to him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. In other words, God was paying attention. Have you ever prayed and felt like maybe nobody was listening? That maybe nobody, just all your prayers are just going out of your mouth and the only thing hearing them are the walls or the ceiling. No doubt, 
that for many, many times, maybe every time, Cornelius felt the very same way and had no idea that God was actually paying attention. Now that gives me some hope and it ought to give you some hope as well. When you feel like that your prayers are not being heard, do like Cornelius did and just keep on praying. When you feel like that serving God and doing the right thing isn't doing any good, just do like Cornelius did and just keep on doing it. Because eventually, God paid attention and then God did something about Cornelius' prayer. The angel shows up and Cornelius sees the angel. He's afraid, but the angel comforts him and says, Hey, it's okay, Cornelius. God has heard your prayer. Verse number 5, the angel gives Cornelius some instructions. He says, and now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Now, I'm going to kind of skip a portion of this passage here for sake of time and give you a little bit of explanation before we pick up reading. So Cornelius obeys what the angel says. He sends two of his household servants and one of his faithful soldiers, and they go to try to find this Simon Peter who's lodging with Simon the Tanner. They begin to travel, and here's Simon Peter. It's lunchtime. It's about the sixth hour of the day. It's time for lunch or dinner, whichever one that you agree with what Brother Rogers preached last week. If you're from the rural area, it was dinner time. If you're from the city, it's lunchtime. Really doesn't matter. It's the twelfth, it's the sixth hour of the day. It's noonish. Peter's hungry and they're still fixing the vittles and he's waiting. I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know how your home is, but uh, my wife has just this terrible habit of calling me to the table just a little bit before it's ready. Nobody else says that? Nobody's nodding your head? You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, because I'm smelling the food and then I'm sitting down here and it's like, okay, I'm ready. But that usually means that I've got just a few minutes. Now, be careful, gentlemen. You say, well, I'm going to maybe just kind of delay. No, you don't want to be late. You want to be there on time. But Peter says, you know what? I know they always call me a little bit early instead of... uh, just sitting there waiting on my food because I'm really hungry, I'm going to just go do some praying. And so he went up to the rooftop and he began to pray. And while he's praying, something unprecedented happens, something kind of strange. He goes in a trance and he sees from heaven a big, huge sheet, uh, maybe kind of like a parachute size, And inside of this sheet, it's all tied together with the four corners, kind of like, you know, you ever seen how the stork would deliver the baby and something like that? It's a big one of those. And inside of it is not a baby. Inside of it is a bunch of creatures, animals that to the Jew, they weren't supposed to touch them. They certainly weren't supposed to eat them. And so Peter's praying, talking to God, this vision shows up, all these unclean critters in this sheet, and the Lord says, rise, Peter, slay and eat. I want you to kill one of those critters, I want you to barbecue it, and I want you to eat it. Peter's like, nuh-uh, not me. 
Lord, I've never eaten any unclean animal. I've been a good Jew my whole life. I've never touched anything unclean. I've never eaten anything unclean. I can't do that. That's against my religion. That's interesting how he's telling God that. The sheep full of these critters raises up. This happens three times. And Peter is still, he still doesn't rise and slay and eat like he was told. But after the third time, the vision is over because somebody knocks at his door. Well, you know who it is. It's the two household servants of Cornelius as well as that soldier. They're at the door. So Peter comes and he begins to talk. Uh, We'll pick up at verse 17. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for for Simon's house, and stood before the gate, and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee, and arise therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God and of good report among all the nations of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. All right, so Peter, the next verses here talk about how that Peter finally sums kind of gets the courage to obey that vision, to obey the voice of the Lord, and to go with these men to this Gentile, which by the way, Cornelius is a Gentile, and the Jews were not supposed to go into the home of a Gentile. So all of this, God's saying to Peter, I want you to kill and eat these unclean animals, and then them saying, I want you to come into this home of the Gentile, all of this is putting a strain on Peter's religious convictions. Now let's skip down to verse number 34. Peter now is in the house. He has come in to Cornelius and all of his household people. And in verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Now, Peter is telling the story. He's testifying of what he saw. But within this is the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Later on... You'll recall several weeks ago, we found that the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was converted from Judaism to Christianity. 
he will end up becoming the apostle of the Gentiles. And to the apostle Paul, God revealed uh, much of church age doctrine. In fact, this none of this would have been as big of a shock to the Apostle Paul's system as it was to Peter's system. But Paul declared the gospel message in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul said, I have declared unto you the gospel by which ye are saved. All right, that gospel is good news. It's a message. And Paul says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, Peter didn't fully understand all of the details of what was getting ready to happen, but he certainly understood that the message that he needed to be preaching was the message of the cross of Calvary, of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and raising the third day. Verse 41, he says, Not to all the people, but unto witnesses, excuse me, verse 40, him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick, that's the living, as well as the dead. Verse 43, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. They of the circumcision, that would be the Jews that were accompanying Peter, they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. So what they're seeing is the same thing that they experienced in Acts chapter number 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God descended for the first time and opened up a whole brand new program. They saw this happening with these Gentiles that they're preaching to. This is brand new. This is amazing. They don't even know what to think of it. Verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now, if you'll recall, several months ago, we were in Acts chapter number two, and we saw how that the Bible clarifies the confusion of all of the tongue speaking beliefs that we find for the last 2000 years. And there is a lot of confusion. The Bible will clarify that if we will believe the Bible over our personal feelings and experiences. Listen, I'm all for feelings and experiences. I like it when I'm happy, don't you? You don't like it when I'm happy? I mean, you like it when you're happy, right? I like to feel good. I don't like to be depressed and oppressed, and I don't like to be down in the dumps. I like to feel good. I like it. When God feels very close to me, and I hate it when God feels far, far away. And there are some days that it's just like that, and then there's other times that our frailty and our sin nature and our faults and our failures sometimes cause God to feel very, very distant. 
What do I do when that happens? I have to exercise faith. I have to believe that my feelings are not the authority, but rather the Word of God. Listen, I've not always kept my Word, have you? I'd like to think that I have. I want to. I don't want to ever not keep my Word, but you're looking at a man who is very, very human. And sometimes, whether I do it consciously or unconsciously, I am not faithful. But God always is. And I can promise you that He has never told a lie. He has never forgotten anything. He has never changed. He's never had a good day or a bad day. He's always, always holy. And we can always depend and count upon Him. That's why I'm glad that I've got a salvation and a faith that's dependent upon the words of God and not my own feelings circumstances and feelings, boy, they can just cause all kinds of problems here. But the Word of God will clarify confusion in our life, whether it's religious confusion, relational confusion, or any other kind of confusion. The Word of God will clarify us if we'll just believe it and trust it. Verse 47, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? The Bible talks about that Holy Ghost being a spiritual immersion, a spiritual baptism. The moment that you and I are born again, we are spiritually baptized into the body of Christ. That is not a water baptism, by the way. That is God, the Holy Spirit, something that happens in the spirit world. We don't see it. We don't necessarily feel it. But we are literally placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. It's not water. It's spirit. These Gentiles heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed and they responded. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. They got saved. And then afterward, they got baptized. Baptism is always something that takes place after salvation, never for salvation. And it's important that we remember that. Listen, if you're trusting your baptism to get you to heaven, listen, when you were baptized, you went into the water as a lost sinner. You went into the water as a dry sinner. You're going to come up a wet sinner. But if something didn't happen inside in your heart and you're just trusting that religious act in order to get you to heaven, listen, you're missing the boat. It is something that takes place in the heart. The water baptism demonstrates outwardly something that has already taken place on the inside. We've taught that in times past, and we certainly will teach it in the future. And so here, these Gentiles are converted. They said, can can any man forbid water that they be baptized? In verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. And so I want to preach to you this morning on the conversion of Cornelius. But with this story of his conversion, there are some stories behind the story. And that's what I want to spend some time here this morning and talk to you about is the stories behind the story. Let's pray. Father, bless us as we study your word here today. Help me to make good use of the time that we have left. Thank you for this wonderful story of how you saved Cornelius, the very first Gentile that ever came to know Christ as his Savior. Thank you, Lord, for all those in his household that also 
heard that message from Peter and you touched their heart, you led them to repentance, you led them to faith in Christ and their lives were wonderfully changed and they received the forgiveness and remission of their sins. I thank you for all these here today that have been saved and thank you for that promise of a home in heaven. And I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know Christ as their personal Savior, perhaps maybe they would hear and respond to that message today, just like Cornelius, that they too would be converted. I pray that you'd have your will and way, guide us and direct us in Jesus' name, amen. So as I back up a little bit and give a little bit of recap of some necessary events to help us understand what's going on, if you'll recall in Acts chapter number 7, Stephen preached basically the same kind of message that Peter just preached. But instead of people getting saved, those who heard Stephen's message, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed upon him with their teeth and they began to pick up stones and they literally threw rocks at Stephen until he was dead as the very first Christian martyr. They didn't receive his message. We read about how that Jesus, when Stephen was dying, that Stephen said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus, instead of being seated or sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is now standing and looking down as an audience of Stephen's death. In Acts chapter number 8, we see that after Stephen has been killed, that all of the disciples began to scatter. And as they scattered from Jerusalem, they began to evangelize and tell uh, tell Jewish people about Jesus wherever they went. In Acts chapter number 9, God finally gets through to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And Saul becomes a convert. The one who used to be persecuting the disciples now becomes a disciple himself. Which brings us to our text, Acts chapter number 10, in which the first Gentile comes to know Christ as their Savior. Now this is a very important transition because previously, previously the Gentiles were supposed to be avoided. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 5, when Jesus sends out his disciples, it says that the twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles and to any city and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. Jesus said, I don't want you to go to the Gentiles. I don't even want you to go to the half Gentiles. I want you to preach to the Jews and the Jews only. I'm also reminded of how Jesus himself When he was alive on earth in Matthew 15, verse number 26, there was a Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman that came to him and was asking for her daughter to be healed. And Jesus said, Matthew 15, 26, he says, it is not meat, it's not acceptable to take the children's bread, that's the Jewish people, their healing, their miracles, their message, He says it's not acceptable to take their bread and to feed it to the dogs. Now, can you imagine if Jesus were alive today and CNN were to get a hold of that response? I mean, that was not very politically correct. That was not very sensitive. But it was very true. Jesus always said what he meant 
and meant what he said. He didn't mince words. He wasn't trying to impress people. He was simply the Son of God, and he had authority from God. He knew what he was talking about. And he said, look, I'm not sent to the Gentiles. I am sent to the house of Israel. John chapter number 1 says, he came to his own, the Jewish people, but his own received him not. Now, thank God that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Because the Jews rejected Jesus, thank God us Gentiles get in on this wonderful salvation. Romans chapter 11 speaks of that. It says that God is using the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. You say, that makes me feel like I'm being used by God. Yep. But it's better than going to hell, right? I mean, to get saved and to get forgiveness of sins, whatever God's big picture and big plan is, hey, it may not be revolving around us. We may not be God's plan A. But let me tell you something. If it's God's plan, I don't care if it's B, C, D, or all the way to Z. Make up more letters of the alphabet. If it's God's plan, I'm just glad to get in on it. Amen? What a wonderful God that we serve. And so that woman said to Jesus, Yea, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus was amazed. And you know that Syrophoenician, that Canaanite Gentile, got what she was looking for because she humbled herself and said, Hey, I agree. I'm just a dog. I don't deserve the children's bread, but Lord, could I just have a crumb? And that's another thing. God's crumbs are better than all of the storehouses of this earth. Uh, One of God's crumbs is enough to get us to heaven. And so the stories behind this story, the first thing that I'll go through here quickly with you is we see a story of transitions. Within the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there's a dividing line between Malachi and Matthew. And once we get to the book of Matthew, obviously things begin to change, but there are some transitions that take place. And understanding these transitions are necessary to ensure that what we believe is sound doctrine. I want to be doctrinally pure. I think it's important that every Christian, every believer, every child of God should be morally pure, but we should also be doctrinally pure. We should be doing the right things, We should be refraining from doing the wrong things, but we should also be believing the right things. And I've got news for you. Our behavior and our beliefs are always going to be connected in one way or another. This is a story of some transitions. In the Bible, the beginning of the New Testament, we have the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, we also have the Gospel of John, but the Gospel of John is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in these Gospels, we find an evident transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus begins to explain some things about the Old Testament that the Jews had missed. Jesus begins to talk about some things that are getting ready to change. I think about as we get into the book of John... 
that transition is almost complete. And boy, Jesus starts saying some things that are totally different than what he said earlier on in his ministry. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke bring us from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Now, where does the New Testament begin? According to the book of Hebrews, the New Testament does not start chronologically until Jesus dies on the cross. You have to have the death of the testator. And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also in John, Jesus is alive, but he has not yet died. So chronologically, the New Testament does not begin until Jesus dies on the cross. But he shows up and he begins his ministry preparing everything for that. So thus we have a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Then we get into the book of Acts. Acts is a transition going from the law, because before the cross, God's people were under the covenant of the law, the commandments that God gave through Moses. They were under the Old Testament portion of Scripture, the Pentateuch, the the Psalms, the prophets, and so forth. That was their binding authority. And the book of Acts starts bringing the Jewish people from the law into the kingdom. If you'll recall, Jesus told his disciples to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And so the children of Israel, they're looking for a king. They're looking for someone who's going to deliver them from the Roman oppression They're looking for someone who's going to sit on the throne and is going to fight their battles and free them and now and then they're going to be a nation like that they once were in the past. That's what they're looking for. But when the Son of God shows up, He's not ready to become their king, not until He can first be their Savior. They had a hard time understanding that. So the book of Acts is that transitional going from the law to the kingdom. And then we find about Acts chapter number 10, a transition, a second transition begins to take place, and that is a transition from the kingdom to the church. The church, as I've already mentioned, is God's plan B. It's not the way that God had originally designed it to be. In fact, I've heard, I'm not saying that there are not Old Testament prophecies that refer to the church, but most of them have a primary meaning about the kingdom. And this church age that we live in is just kind of a parentheses of time. It's a 2,000 year parentheses. But if you view the Old Testament prophecies as being applied to the church rather than to Israel, Just a caution, you're going to find yourself very confused. Some things just aren't going to make sense. By the way, Jesus died on the cross, but the lion and the lamb are not eating together. We are not in that kingdom. We are not in that place where God prophesies will one day happen. So Acts brings us into another transition from the kingdom to the church. And then we find the book of Hebrews in the New Testament which creates a lot of doctrinal controversy, a lot of things where Hebrews seems to contradict Ephesians or Romans on numerous occasions. The reason being is because Hebrews is written, yes, it's a New Testament book, 
but it is a transitional book trying to get the Jew from the church age back into the kingdom which was originally designed for uh, for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people. I hope I haven't lost you here this morning, but these are some transitions that are very evident in the Scripture. And for us to understand the Bible and not get tripped up on doctrinal heresy, I believe that it's vital that we understand these transitions. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. These transitions that I just talked about are rightly dividing. We're not chopping up the Scripture. We're simply, through study, dividing the Scripture and putting Scripture in its immediate context and seeing not only the immediate, but also the big picture. Now, I'll say this before we move on to point number two, and that is this. There are various theories as to when the kingdom was no longer being offered to the Jew and when that was over. Some have said Acts chapter number 7, when Stephen was stoned. Uh, Some have said right here in Acts chapter number 10 that the kingdom's over and now God's going to the Gentile. Some have said that it was 70 A.D. when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed by Titus, uh, the, the Roman general. I, I don't have the absolute answer to all of that. But I do believe, personally, that by the time that we get to the end of the book of Acts, uh, certainly that kingdom is no longer being offered, and we are smack dab in the, the beginning, full beginning, of the church age, and that's when the Apostle Paul begins to write and tell, uh, give us church age doctrine, Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, and so forth. So it's, there's a story of transitions here in Acts chapter number 10. Secondly, there's a story of dispensations. Dispensations. If you've been a Bible student or if you've been around any length of time, you've probably heard this word dispensation. In fact, Paul uses the word, he talks about if he didn't preach the gospel, then a dispensation of the gospel was going to be committed unto him. A dispensation is simply, if you'll please get this, it's not just strictly a time period. But it usually has something to do with a time period. A dispensation is the method or program God uses in any given time period to dispense. That's where the word dispensation comes from. God is dispensing His message to man as well as His testing of man. And in each one of these dispensations, the test becomes considerably different. Let's talk about the first dispensation in the Bible. The first one would be the time period of innocence. We find that in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God dispenses His truth. He gives His test to man whom He's created. And the test is really quite simple. God says to Adam, Of all of the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou mayest not eat for the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. It's a simple test. Eat all you want, help yourself, just don't eat that fruit. And of course, we know the story that Adam and Eve both ate of that fruit and men fell from the first dispensation to the second dispensation, which is the dispensation of conscience. After the fall in the Garden of Eden, man is now living by a conscience. They, man didn't have a conscience before the fall. He didn't need a conscience. That word conscience means self-awareness. If you'll recall, when they ate of that fruit uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, they all of a sudden discovered that they were naked. They were naked before. But they didn't have a conscience about it, and so they weren't even aware of it. But now, man has a conscience, and during the time of the dispensation of conscience, they are having to live by that conscience. They don't have a Bible like you and I have. They don't have, they don't have anything that says, thus saith the Lord. They just simply have their conscience. And whatever they're able to pass on from Adam to his children, things perhaps that Adam learned from God when they would walk in the Garden of Eden, we don't have any record of what they talked about, but certainly there was some truth that was being handed down from mouth to mouth, generation to generation, and uh, through that and the human conscience, God was dealing with his creation. Now, within this, if you'll recall, God destroyed the earth with a flood because man's thoughts and imaginations became just nothing but wickedness. He sends a flood. He spares Noah and his family. And after that, he gives Noah some commandments. He said, if anybody sheds man's blood, by man should his blood be shed. God instituted capital punishment and with that, he also instituted human government. Now, something that if you read some really good Bible teachers, most will say that there are seven dispensations. And most will say that the third dispensation is that of human government. Well, I have to, uh, I have to follow what I see in the Bible, not what other men see in the Bible. And when I see something in the Bible that doesn't make sense with what somebody else concluded, you know what I have to do? I have to obey God and just teach it the way that I see it. I don't see a big difference in God dispensing His truth once human government is instituted. Yes, there was some changes, but God is still dealing with man. The test is still associated with man's conscience and not necessarily is God dealing with man through human government. That brings us to what I will call the third dispensation, and that is the time of the patriarchs. Something changed when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and sent him to Canaan land and said, listen, I'm going to make of you a great nation And he said, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He said, I'm going to bless them that bless you. 
I'm going to curse them that curse you. So now a dispensation changes. Now the entire world is being tested or judged by God by how they treat Abraham and his descendants. And by the way, even though we have moved on from that dispensation, that promise that God made to Abraham, that's still in force today. That's why I thank God that so far we have a president that's standing by Israel today. That is extremely important for the blessings of our nation. Without that, I can say uh, we are toast. And probably in very short term. Nothing good has ever come toward anyone that has ever cursed or went against the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Despite of how they act and behave. Let me tell you something. They still belong to God. And listen, your <laughs> your neighbors may not like your children. But if your neighbor ever tries to give your child a whooping, they're going to be in trouble, right? Because they're your children. It's the same way. Israel belongs to God. We may not like what they're doing. We may not approve. But you better let God take care of it because that promise is still in force today. That brings us to the next dispensation, number four. Uh, That is the dispensation of the law. God starts to make Israel into a, a large nation like he promised. They're in bondage in Egypt. God raises up a man named Moses. Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then God takes Moses up on the top of Mount Sinai and begins to give him commandments and ordinances and starts spelling out all the detail of life and religion through Moses. And so from that point on, the nation of Israel, their dispensation, their testing is how and if they're going to obey the covenant that God made with them. By the way, God told them, if you'll obey me, if you'll follow my commandments, then everything's going to go well for you. But if you don't, things are going to start falling apart from every different direction. And you know what? History and the Bible make that clear that whenever Israel would try to follow God, things would go well. Whenever they turned away from God, things in very short term would just start unraveling. Now listen, America has not replaced the Jew. America is not Israel. But we chose the God of Israel to be our God. And He's still the same God. And we know what He likes and we know what He dislikes. I feel pretty strong about this, that America... I mean, you look at the history of our nation, we should have never become the nation that we are today. It's not because our natural resources. There are countries that have far greater natural resources than we do. The only thing that you can can explain the prosperity and blessings of America is to say that somehow, somewhere along the way, God said, you know what? I may have chose Israel to be my nation, but that nation chose me to be their God. And I'm going to bless them for it. 
And while we may be economically prosperous today, look around. Listen, America is not under the blessings of God. I mean, we're, we're killing babies. We are sanctioning and legalizing perversion. Uh, you, you name it, you go right down the line, and we are in a bad spiritual and moral condition in America. It's just a matter of time until the economics catch up. You don't, you don't believe that? You go take any university, any university, and you go park somewhere, and you watch those students walk to and fro, and you look at them and saying, those are the people that are going to be protecting our country tomorrow. I don't mean to sound condescending. I don't mean that at all. I love young people. But I'm telling you what, we're going to have a generation of people that, that they know how to reach seven levels of a video game, but they don't know how to live their life. It's just a matter of time until things are going to start catching up. And I believe that it's the, the time, we're, we're snowballing. And I'm afraid that we're going to start seeing a lot of that implosion in our lifetime if the Lord tarries. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. From there, we have the most important event that took place in human history. And that is number five, the cross of Calvary, when Jesus shows up, and boy, will you talk about a change in the dispensation. Now the test is simply, you either have Jesus or you don't have Jesus. If He's your Savior, if the blood's been applied, then you're saved. If He's not your Savior, He is the way, the truth, and the life. It is no longer under the law. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't deserve it. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ. That brings in the church age. And then from the church age, number six, we have the um, what on our chart is called the age of readiness. We know it as the tribulation period. That is where God, the tribulation period is Israel's woodshed. God's going to take them behind it and God's going to change their heart. And what God originally planned and designed Israel is going to repent. They're going to turn their heart back toward God like they should have done 2,000 years ago. And God's going to restore them as the chief of nations. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David. And boy, this that's going to usher in number seven, which is the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is... God's plan for the ages. And I know if you're not familiar with these things, you might be sitting there going, wow, that's interesting, but I feel very, very overwhelmed. Well, you've just been given just kind of some basic guidelines that will open up the Bible to you. You'll be able to understand that, hey, this book right here is filled with a lot of people's mail. This book is filled filled with Moses' mail. This book is filled with Noah's mail. This book is filled with Job's mail. This book is filled with the church's mail. And this book is filled with Israel's mail. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. I may be reading somebody else's mail. 
It may be written for me, but it's not all written to me. There are some things that I can read. Listen, I'm not looking for a tree of knowledge of good and evil today, are you? I'm not in that dispensation. I'm not in that time period. That is in the past. Things have changed. What we have to understand is the Bible that is doctrinally written to us. God, what do I need to do? Cornelius didn't know what he needed to do. His heart was right. I mean, he was praying and he was giving money to the Jewish people and helping them out. And he believed in the God of Israel. His heart was right, but he didn't understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He had to hear that message. Why? Because doctrinally, that was the message for him. Folks, doctrinally, the same message is for us today. Thank God for the cross of Calvary. I want to go quickly through point number three, and that is the story of populations, of people, if you will. We need to understand that God doesn't categorize people according to race or culture. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.32, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. You know what Paul has given us? He's given us the three types of people that live on planet earth. God doesn't look at black, white, uh, Caucasian, purple, doesn't matter. None of that matters. You're either, you're one of three people. Uh, you're either a Jew. That means you're a descendant of Abraham. And I would say that you have to be a descendant of Abraham that you've kept the covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham that the males need to be circumcised. That made them a Jew. If you're just a descendant of Abraham, but you've not kept that covenant, you would be classified as an Hebrew, but not necessarily as a Jew. The next group of people are the Gentiles. That's everyone else. (laughs) That's pretty simple, right? You've got descendants of Abraham that have kept the covenant. Everybody else, regardless of nationality, regardless of geographic location, we would be considered Gentiles. And then the third group of people... That's the church of God. Church of God, I know that there are, there's a denomination that calls themselves the church of God, but this is not a denomination. This is a description. This means that this is a church of God. I hope you get that. Meaning that it's God's church, that God's the one that established it. It's not a church that's built upon any man or any movement. It is simply God's church. And listen, I'm a member of that church. I became a member of that church the very moment that I got born again. The moment I got saved, God placed me in His church. I didn't have to fill out a card. I didn't have to meet with one of the deacons. I didn't have to come forward in a church service. I got saved. Without knowing it, I became a member of that church, God's church. And so you are, you are one of these three people, you're either a Jew, a Gentile, or a church of God. And if you're church of God, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. God now classifies you as part of his church, his body. Understanding this, rightly dividing these categories of people will protect you 
from the bondage of dietary laws and religious rituals. If you understand what God expects of the church of God, then you'll realize I'm not a Jew. I don't have to keep those dietary laws. The Bible says that let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day. Hey, God doesn't even care what day we go to church. I said it. You cannot slam dunk prove that from the Bible. All the Bible says is that forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I mean, we're just supposed to meet and gather. I am certain God never came out and said, thou shalt have church on Saturday, thou shalt have church on Sunday. I'm quite certain that the early disciples had church whenever they could. And they weren't even paying any attention to what day of the week is. Now, resurrection took place on Sunday. So if you're going to have to pick a day of the week, I think Sunday is a pretty good day to pick. But Sunday did not replace Saturday or the Sabbath. And you can't prove that in the scripture. That's just a religious tradition, a doctrine of man. All right. It'll also protect you from replacement theology. So what do you mean by replacement theology? There are some heretics, and there always will be, that are trying to teach people that the church has replaced the Jew. And that is simply false. Romans chapter 11 says God's not done with them. Listen, I know people have taught that America is now God's nation. You know what? That is hogwash. That is baloney. And doesn't matter what first name it has. It's just simply not so. The Jew, Israel, is still Israel. They've been set on the shelf, but God hasn't cast them away. When God's finished with us, He'll go right back to them. And that's going to be a wonderful thing for planet Earth. That's going to be a wonderful thing when Jesus is their king and we get in on that as well. And then finally, number four, there's a story of renovation. In verses 34 through verse 35, uh, we read here, it says that, uh, let's read it again. Peter said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Listen, God's not a respecter of persons. Uh, I'm, I'm an independent Baptist, but I'm not part of any other affiliation. It doesn't matter if there's an independent Baptist church across the town. Whatever they're doing, whatever they're preaching has nothing to do. I've got a Bible I've got a congregation of fellowship, and we follow the Word of God. And you say, well, why are you Baptist? Well, just identification. There are certain beliefs that we hold to that are historically and traditionally Baptistic. And so I have no problem with being called a Baptist. But if all the other Baptists start believing something different, and it's not expedient, to identify yourself with Baptist, you know what we ought to do? We ought to change our name to something that identifies us for what we actually believe. Nothing wrong with that. 
I hope that that day never happens. I don't anticipate that ever happening. Hey, I am, you can do what you want with this. I am a King James Bible believer. I think I've got a perfect book right here that God gave us in the English language. And I'm thankful for that. I'm glad that I have a final authority. Now, if that's not the book that you choose to read or whatever, hey, you know what? I'm not going to be your enemy as long as you don't start attacking my book. I'm just thankful for that. But listen, you say, why are you saying all this? Because I think it's important that we make these statements. Hey, I'm an independent Baptist. I'm a King James Bible believer. It is important that I make sure that those statements are verbs, not nouns. A title or a category is a noun. I'm not interested in a label or a title. When I say I'm a Bible believer, that better be a verb, meaning that I am believing the Bible. When I say I'm an independent Baptist, that should be a verb, meaning that I am exercising those beliefs and I'm not getting affiliated with people who don't believe true doctrine. You say that sounds... You know what? This is what's interesting. If we're not... People will sometimes say, well, how am I supposed to know that we're right? Well, we study the Bible, right? Now listen, I'm not up here saying that I got it all figured out. I'm still a student. And I've learned some things today that I didn't know yesterday. I'm a work in progress. Hey, we just read about Peter. The Apostle Peter was a work in progress. But he was a Bible believer. He believed the Word of God and the Word of God directed him through his life and ministry. And we ought to do the same thing. I'm independent. Meaning that I don't, I I shouldn't care what anybody out there thinks about what I believe, if I know what I believe and why I believe it and it comes from this Bible, then that should be good enough. Amen? They're verbs, not titles, not nouns. When we, be, when we use these things as a noun, we become prideful. We, become, we get this feeling like that we're it and everybody else needs to be like us. No, just... Believe the Bible and follow it, and you're going to be okay. God is not a respecter of persons. Hey, He'll never break His word, but you can't, you can't put Him in your little box. I'll tell you that. That's the way that our God is. God's not going to break His word, but um, if you think that you can box Him in, He's not going to be boxed in. Now, um, I'm going to skip this next portion uh, that says, why do you suppose it was Peter that God sent to Cornelius? Uh, I think that there are some scriptural reasons why it was Peter and not the Apostle Paul, but if you'll skip the next couple verses on the screen, I want to take you directly to the conclusion. Hey, I haven't preached for two weeks, so you're just going to have to bear with me. i got a lot bottled up right here. <laughs> In conclusion, I just want to talk to you about the power of prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. I'm amazed. Cornelius was not a saved man. 
He wasn't even a Jewish man, but he believed in the power of prayer. When Peter rehearses his story to the Jews in Acts chapter number 11, in fact, look at with me Acts chapter number 11, the very next chapter. All this has happened, and Peter's getting ready to go back to the brethren, and they're going to be, they got some serious questions. <gasps> Peter, we heard that you went into the Gentiles. We heard that you went into their, their house and that you talked to them. And Peter's, you know, Peter's always been someone to worry about what people think of him. The maid that he denied the Lord. Peter, that was always a struggle for him. So Peter is, he's rehearsing this. Okay, um, how do I explain this? And he's got it all figured out. But notice how he says in Acts 11 and verse number 13, it says, and he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter who shall tell thee words, watch this, words whereby thou and all thy house shall be, what's it say? Saved. That exact statement did not appear in chapter 10. But that's exactly what happened. Cornelius sent for Peter to hear words whereby him and his house should be saved. Listen, you can be a good person. You can be a devout religious person, a faithful church member. You can be a giver, a tither, give to missions. You can say your prayers faithfully, but you still need to be saved. And salvation comes from words. How about that? Salvation comes from words. What are those words? Those words are the death, burial, and resurrection, that gospel message of Jesus Christ. Those are the words that can save us. Romans 10, verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I'm glad to say here this morning that it doesn't matter what your nationality is, doesn't matter what your religious affiliation is, doesn't matter if you have money or if you have no money, doesn't matter if you're educated or ignorant, or anything in between, there are words, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, whereby you can be saved. And without faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, then you can pray, you can talk to God, you can be religion, but faith in Christ is the only thing that will save you. You can be saved today before it's eternally too late. I'm glad that Cornelius got saved, and I'm glad that regardless of who we are, the Lord will save sinners. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for these stories behind the story, the transitions, the different people groups, Lord, the understanding of the different dispensations. Father, I think about when I was taught this and how that it opened up the Bible. It clarified all of these apparent uh, contradictions, these things that I just couldn't make sense of why it said one thing in one place and something else in another place in the Bible. But Lord, you just opened that up through rightly dividing the word of truth. And I pray, Father, that maybe someone here today, 
Lord, has been struggling with understanding the Bible. And I hope and pray that something's been said today that's helped them. And I pray if anyone here today is not saved, I pray that they get saved before they leave this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.